Keep holding my hand, my hand, my hand. Keep holding my hand. You're listening to Race Capital with me, Chelsea Higgs Wise, where we interrogate racial narratives in Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. Breaking news Pride isn't a month, it's a lifestyle. And in Richmond's moment of uprising, race capital takes our southern narratives from the capital of the Confederacy across the nation to the Northwest and Seattle, Washington. Even with less than 5% of the Seattle population being black, the stories were the same of the housing, the policing, the erasure, and the violence of devaluing black lives. This episode continues our efforts to root this moment into expanding our historical consciousness to equip our cognitives for this marathon. This movement is for Black queer lives. Publicly defending Black life through challenging our lens through the gender binary has been coupled with the visual narrative of many physical objects we have used as self-defense. 51 years ago, it may have started with a brick, and now it's transitioned to a cell phone, but our defense tactics include all of our bodies in the streets of Richmond today. Having Marsha P. Johnson as an ancestor and making that brick historic in our public memory has taught black queer people that we hold the power to make our truths the reality so that all of Richmond, all of the Commonwealth, and all of us residing on stolen land must take accountability for where we stand in this transgenerational conflict. If we, everyone, all of our identities can question and confront our resistance to dismantling the gender binary, then we can also successfully imagine a world that manifests liberation for all of us. As of now, the capital of the Confederacy is a case study to how the powers that be will only protect the few at the top and a few black faces willing to compromise their soul by throwing up their blinders to us and their peripheral vision and by turning a blind eye to their siblings being murdered in the street. With our unsaid racism cloaked in reconciliation and civility, Virginia is funneling our tax dollars to protect the privileged. The 400-year good old boy network, otherwise known as the Virginia General Assembly, continues to ensure the public's resources maintain violence and exchange for profit, all for the preservation of the wealthy, while we continue to scream, what a privilege. Who are we protecting with another month of National Guard lining our streets to shut us down? And who have we elected that has not committed to the radical shift needed to cement this moment into our governance? If representatives aren't working within the urgency of now, then start the countdown. Our voices transcend the streets through organizational infrastructure built over generations, which has been watered, sowed, and lifted in these last few years leading to this moment. On Monday, Governor Northam quietly signed an executive order extending a state of emergency declaration in Richmond following the, quote, civil unrest, end quote. Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney made this direct request as the over-policing of Richmond demonstrations have drained funds, but Stoney seems to have decided to continue the violence on Black life. In a letter Monday to the governor that the city has minimum funding to cover costs, and that the bandwidth of the city's personnel will reach its limit soon. But in the words of mayoral candidate Alexis Rogers, quote, 
This means more money for policing, and this is wholly unnecessary. Alexis Rogers says that the protests in Richmond demand respect. People have been marching in defense of Black lives, putting their bodies on the line every day and night for over 30 days. The attempts to silence protesters are harmful for our democracy, she says, and the current leadership in our city is not listening to you, end quote. But you're here and you're listening to Race Capital. So what are you going to do about it? We will continue what we have always done, found joy while being surrounded by a police state equipped in riot gear. Just know it's been the intersection of our joy and defense of our black life that allows us to stand on the shoulders of giants and empowers us to laugh at co-opting narratives to devalue voices and maintain the social hierarchy of white supremacy. But we are the movement and welcome to our moment. This week on Race Capital, we hear from Black Pride RVA board member Natasha Crosby, Seattle LGBTQ activist Jake Pack, and finally, Song Virginia organizer Rebecca Keel reports a rundown of the work coming from the ground. But first, we talk to activist and Native Richmonder supporting the queer community, Miss Aurora Higgs. Stay tuned for this episode where we dismantle the myth of a Pride Month and intersect our lens to ensure that we defend all Black life all year long. Today on Race Capital, we have a voice in the community that is an activist as well as a scholar. We'd love to welcome today on Race Capital, Aurora Higgs. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much, Aurora, for being here. You know, I have been really honored to hear your voice out in the street and to see you show up um, very intentionally in different marches throughout Richmond. And of course, for a lot of listeners that may or may not know, you are my little sister. That's right. Keeping it in the family. (laughs) Keeping it in the family. So this episode is really highlighting the voices of pride and really taking back this month. And I was out in Seattle and a lot of people know this and participate in an LGBTQ plus parade and call it a parade because there was so much joy within it as well. But this meant that I missed the march with Black Pride and the Stonewall March that happened. And I was really excited to see that you emceed that. So I wanted to invite you and share a little bit about your work with everyone, as well as tell us about the march that happened this past weekend. Yeah, so the march that took place over the weekend was the Stonewall March here in Richmond, Virginia. Um, For a lot of people who don't know, Stonewall is uh, the shortened name that we sometimes use to refer to the Stonewall Riots, which happened in New York in um, 19... I want to say 69. Um, so we are celebrating our 51st year of 
um, remembering Stonewall. And Stonewall was basically a riot against police brutality who raided a club. And finally, the LGBT community at the time just had had enough. And it became a struggle against the police. And I think that it's important for us to remember that we were still dealing with police brutality because at the time, you know, police were taking bribes from these clubs to not raid them, but they still had the full discretion to raid them even when they made those deals. So we've been dealing with toxic police authority for a really long time. And 51 years later, we're still fighting a similar battle. Yeah. And how do you feel like that similarity and parallel is being amplified in this moment of policing and, 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 and the street type of defense to police violence? I think so. I think every, I bet I would have thought every year it would, that would have been the case, but this year in particular, just it feels like we're joining um, almost like a class action suit, you know, with other marginalized communities against the police. Um, and I use that very figuratively. There is no um, legal suit. I want to be clear. Interrupting this interview to say that there is a lawsuit happening with the ACLU on behalf of the Virginia Student Power Network against the city of Richmond and against the Richmond Police Department that is still happening. So stay tuned for more of that right here on Race Capital and back to Aurora. Um, But it kind of feels that way where we're all have been, uh, we've all felt victimized by the same entity that has sworn that they are here to protect us and we're tired of it. So yeah, this year, I think with all the other um, spotlights on police brutality across different um, ethnicities and communities, we are really finding solidarity in um, defunding the work that uh, comes with defunding the police. it's really something. I, I think what's funny is now that it's affecting people that were traditionally of privilege, now all of a sudden we are seeing our numbers really bolster when it comes to resisting. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's a little sad, but it's great that people are finally understanding and empathizing with the people who have historically been targeted. My work has definitely transformed a little bit since a month ago, which I never would have thought that I would have seen such a quick, a short amount of time and, you know, seen such a transformation in a lot of people's work. Before, I would say that my engagement was a lot of speaking engagements in very, like, sterilized settings. Definitely not out on the streets, usually in air-conditioned buildings where people of privilege often come to hear the insights of people that they, you know, may have felt that they've ignored in the past. And... Now, since the the month, it's felt a lot less like I'm trying to educate people who are struggling with knowledge gaps and more like I'm just trying to provide solidarity and physical safety for my community members. When I look at trans people globally, I literally consider them to be siblings. And when I feel like one of them's been attacked, it hurts me. And so um, kind of like an angry mom, I feel like I'm storming the streets now in hopes that I'm providing some sort of preventative measure against violence against those that, you know, are in my community and that I love so dearly. I think that when we talk about equity work, I think that really good theories of how equity work work are multi-pronged. So, um, you know, I, I, I want to do equity work when I'm out there um, with people with diverse jobs. So myself, I consider myself to be a performer because I really being able to reach people emotionally and through um, performance and art is ju- it just resonates with me. So um, 
because I would not consider myself to be um, historically have been an organizer in that like I've really set up marches. I've really been like the the crew and getting a lot of these things done. I'm kind of the front person and I think I get a lot of praise for that. But I want to emphasize that that's just the role that I play and it just happens to be a very forward-facing one. So in the streets, it, it's kind of I, it's going to kind of look like I'm doing a lot more work than I am, to be quite frank, because people just automatically assume that all the hard work is being done by the people who are the most forward facing. And in my case, I let the people who are really good at organizing and detail orientation to do that. And there are people out there who hate public speaking. I just don't. And so if that means that my job is up there to motivate the crowd or to kind of help put things into perspective, um, then I'm happy to do that. But by no means do I think that my work is the center of the work. I, I think it is far from that. Um, so my work, I don't know that my work has necessarily changed in the streets because it rarely took place in the streets. And now it's a little bit more of me doing the front person work and really being just a, a, a number in the crowd to show solidarity. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And But I, I know that the work that you weren't necessarily doing in the streets um, translates to the streets because there are a lot of people that have never been in the streets before mm -hmm. that are there now looking for how to navigate that space. And you being there is like a trust builder in a way mm -hmm. as well. And I know it might not be the logistical things that you're running, but I, I know that in these intersectional spaces, it takes voices like yours behind the scenes doing the organizing to help connect people and maybe help un people understand what's happening and why folks are asking for things like defund the police. You know, mm -hmm. even the LGBTQ plus community is very multifaceted, obviously. And it also, right now we're talking about the intersection of race. And so I, I wanna also just lift the work that I know you're doing behind the scenes that takes a lot of that emotional labor of connecting just people's attitudes and understanding to pull off such a march. I would love to hear you share a little bit about your memories. I know we'll hear from Jake in the show about how the performing aspect of the Seattle March was so important for them to include. So we would love to hear a little bit about your moments from the Stonewall March here in Richmond. Yeah, absolutely. So it was so surreal. And I, I say that about every riot I've attended in the past month, but everything that I've experienced this month is so unprecedented when it comes to like my um, frames of reference um, that I've built over the years. Um, so when I showed up for the Stonewall March, of course, I met with the organizers and um, <clears throat> just to kind of get some logistical stuff um, out of the way. And they were immediately so thankful just for everyone who had been, who was volunteering and, you know, they were talking to media and they were, you know, ha being asked to kind of do a lot as organizers are, and yet we're still able to be so welcoming and I could feel the passion that they had um, to do this march because I don't know that the organizers really have a long history doing things like this and it was it, it went so well. Um, so we left from um, Diversity Richmond, which is a really popular organization here in Richmond, Virginia, that um, also has a thrift store attached to it. And that thrift store um, provides the community with goods at you know, 
cheaper costs than they would be otherwise. And they also provide um, community service hours for people who um, are looking to do that or maybe are court ordered. Um, but it's just a community space and it's an event space and it's where a lot of the events in Richmond take place um, because they charge so little, um, if anything, because they're nonprofit. Um, and so we showed up at the parking lot and it was a sea of people. I got on stage and it was a small stage, but I could just see over everyone and I was in awe. Um, and I think everyone else who got on stage kind of said the same thing like, wow, there are a lot more people here than I realized. And um, <clears throat> I was a little nervous about what to talk about. And then it kind of dawned on me that, you know, I don't have to go into this full PhD dissertation on stage. And a lot of people who are in the crowd are going to be young kids who might not even know a lot about Stonewall. So I began the march by just talking about the history of Stonewall, um, namely Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, who are um, queer uh, femmes of color. Um, at that time, I don't know that they would have considered themselves femmes. The language was much different than it is today, but we know that they did not, um, or I should say, we know that they deviated from the gender binary in a lot of ways, and they were really the first um, organizers in gay pride movements and gay right movements. They started um, an organization called STAR, and really, it's just, I wanted to remind the crowd that Pride was started by queer femmes, and we, even at the time of Marsha P. John Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, they were booed off of stage by queer men at the time who felt that they didn't want transvestites, at, which is what they the term they used at the time to sully their cause or their image and wanted to kind of kick them out of the movement, even though it was those queer women who set up that space for them to enjoy. And I think we, I've, we've seen that in pride marches uh, a lot. And just recently, have we started showing in iconography the contributions of queer trans people. And an example of that is the new LGBT flag that you'll see that has either an intersection of a trans flag or includes black and brown colors to represent black and brown people because we are historically been left out of the movement. So I wanted to remind the crowd that we come from a long line of amazing people who did amazing work and that even though you feel the most marginalized, um, maybe being a queer brown person, that you come from hearty roots and that we are the children of Marsha and Sylvia and we are the revolution. And so those are just things that I truly felt and, you know, they're not <laughs> highly intellectual or, or anything like that, but I really felt like that's just what the crowd wanted to hear at the moment it needed to get through that march. Thank you so much. And I know you, I feel like you spoke to this, but this is a question we ask all of our guests of what is your privilege and what are you doing in this moment to really disrupt the myth of white supremacy? Yeah, that's a great question because even though I am a black trans femme, um, I have a lot of privilege that I have to make sure I check and use um, responsibly. I am light-skinned. I am formally educated. I'm getting a PhD in the fall, or I start my PhD in the fall, I should say. And people, because of those things, any combination of those things, people will listen to me more than they might someone who's dark-skinned or not formally educated or speaks in a certain way. And 
honestly, that's messed up. But while that is the case, I will use my voice to advocate and maybe amplify those who are not invited to speak and while also making sure that I'm not speaking for them. Um, and it's really easy to do as a marginalized person because sometimes we feel we can do no wrong, but that is the exact kind of thinking that gets us in trouble and makes us um, complicit in white supremacy. So I try to show up in as many places and just show people that Black trans women can be anywhere that you can be at the grocery store, in a college um, setting, out on the streets, you know, what have you. And I hope that my visibility helps disrupt some of the, ne the negative and unfounded narratives that people hold today. Thank you. And how can we support you, follow you? Um, so on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, my handle is at Aurora Who Is She, all one word. And my cash app is dollar sign Otterhausen, O-T-T-E-R-H-A-U-S-E-N. And then my Venmo is at Aurora hyphen Higgs, H-I-G-G-S. And I just started a YouTube channel not too long ago called Aurora Does. And I don't have a URL for that, but look for me or um, hit me up on social media and I'll give you the link. Please subscribe because I want to, I want to share my experiences globally through uh, platforms like YouTube because I'm seeing a huge lack of Black queer um, positive role models and messages on those platforms. So yeah. And we will be sharing those links and uh, ways to support within our SoundCloud description. So you can always double check that at Race Capital. Uh, thank you so much, Aurora, Sissy, for being here, for being amazing. And I couldn't be more proud of, um, you know, just seeing, doing and seeing what our family taught us. And really in this moment, all of the support. So I'm thankful for you and thankful for everyone Thank you so much for having me. And trust me, the pride goes both ways. Um, we, it must be something cool in the gene pool because I've got pretty cool sisters as well. Yes, we have a baby sister, Asia, out there that also is pretty awesome. Any last words? No, I would just say let's make this year count while we're at home. Let's make moves, you know. <laughs> I, I think we've got a really rare opportunity to really disrupt some things and leverage our anger. Well, there you have it. Thanks so much, Aurora. Thank you. Wow! Dana Martin. <laughs> Jasmine Ware. Ashanti Carmen. Claire Legato. Malaysia Booker. Chanel Lindsay, Chanel Spurlock, Bowie Spears, Brooklyn Lindsay, Denali Barry Stuckey, Kiki Fontroy, Jordan Kofer, Pebbles Ladine Dove, Tracy Single, Bailey Reed, B. Love Slater, Laylene Polanco, Jalea Jamar, Nina Pop, 
Tony McDade. Dominique Remy Fell. Ryan Milton. Any more names? Charlena Lyles. Any more names? Brianna Taylor. Any more names? Any more names? And today, also on the show, we have Natasha Crosby, who is a board member of Black Pride RVA. Thanks so much, Natasha, for being here. Thank you for having me. So I was watching a webinar that Black Pride RVA did with Richmond Times Dispatch this past week, which I thought was phenomenal. And your voice really stood out to me and the way that you were able to just speak from yourself as a community member, but then also realizing that you have these different roles of helping shaping policy as well as culture. And I really wanted to be able to hear your voice this month. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting that this show comes out on July 1st, which is actually after Pride Month. I think this summer, a Black Pride, Black Power, we just, we just having a Black-ass summer. So I'm really excited to have you on today. Um, well, first, you know, Pride doesn't stop. So Black Pride, uh, LGBTQ Pride, just because it's going to be July 1, it definitely doesn't stop. We're going to keep it going, especially in this, uh, in this atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but for Black Pride RVA, you know, we, we, we live at that intersection, right? So we, we've been Black forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of us have our, uh, our individual stories of, of coming out. But for Black Pride RVA, this, uh, this moment that we are in is, is significant for us because we live at that intersection. We've been Black our whole lives and we, and we carry this pride with us, you know, throughout that. So as we're, as we're seeing the protest, as we're seeing the nationwide and worldwide reaction uh, to the torture of a Black man, it, it resonates with us all. And we, we just want to make sure that we take this moment and, and convert it into a, a movement, keep the movement going. Um, so any way that we can lend our voice, uh, we are there to help. You know, a lot of organizations are in the moments they're having meetings, they're kind of restructuring a little bit of what they're doing or working on, um, on top of having to do that already with COVID. How has living through two pandemics been for you all? Well, I guess essentially we've always been living in two, two pandemics, right? Like when you're, when you're, when you identify as Black and you are also LGBTQ, I mean, the world is already set up against you. So to have something like COVID-19 happen and to hear, you know, the rhetoric of, oh, we're all in this together. And then to, you know, the next week hearing that, oh, black and brown people are being affected at a higher rate. And then the very next week we go back to opening up because everything's all good now that it's just the black and brown people being affected. I mean, that's just the, uh, that's the cycle of, of the, uh, the oppression that we are in. COVID-19 hit us, you know, it hit, it hit everyone pretty hard. I mean, this is, I don't remember the last time I had to sit down so much, you know what I mean? So. I think it was really interesting what you just said about the cycle, because now we are also preparing for the COVID cycle, right? In the winter time, people are saying, we're going to have to go back on lockdown. They're now looking at springtime festivals next year to see if they'll be open. So they're expecting the cycle for COVID and black and queer folks are expecting the cycle with this movement. And it's important 
for us to keep having these conversations very loudly and tying them directly with the change that we can do right now, which is through legislation, electoral politics, around art, even if it's um, <laughs> creating new art and taking art down ourselves. But um, I, I would love to hear more about, just from your stance, around the defund police campaign right now that we're seeing going on nationwide as well as here in the city of Richmond. Yeah, for sure. So I 100% I support defunding the police. Um, and that's because not only is it necessary, right? Like we've, we've, this isn't a new issue for anybody black, right? Uh, we have had a long standing history of not being um, a part of the the country, the, a part of the um, the population that is protected by police, right? We something happens to us, we don't call the police, and we haven't called the police for decades, right? Uh, so we already are paying for an entity that does not um, protect or serve us, but we still have to pay for it. So at this point, in in this in this time, when we're constantly year after year month after month day after day seeing these murders by police officers uh, against black people we know that defunding the police is is the answer and and we have i guess something that we could replicate out of camden out of camden camden new jersey now i'm not saying that camden was a perfect you know a perfect rollout of of a new police department it wasn't right they had to kind of learn their way through it but if we don't start taking those steps you know, we, we simply won't get there. And in this, in this current administration, they're not trying to take the steps to get there. They're literally doing the exact opposite of what they're saying their, their intentions are. They want to listen. They want to uh, have the community input. But there's not a single thing that they've actually done that, that amount to those words, right? Like, it's just a bunch of lip service at this point. If you continue to send police officers out in riot gear, to for them to protest uh, uh, purposeful protests themselves. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. they're not being peaceful. And that's they what are... happened at you all's, at the, um, and that's what happened at the Stonewall March this past week, correct? Exactly, exactly. We're, we're setting up to, uh, to march for Black Lives on uh, an anniversary weekend of the Stonewall riots, and we're met with, uh, folks in riot gear that we paid for. You know, we paid for that. We paid for y'all to stand there and to uh, act as this this force of strength when really all, all you really need is an olive branch. Hear us. Mm. And that force of strength is really a force of intimidation directly back at you. So you are funding your own intimidation, your own anxiety, your, like, it's supposed to be fear invoking. And it was really hard to see that and watch. But the beautiful thing that we can always count on, especially with Black queer folks, is the joy and the resilience that was still happening, even with a perimeter right. of militia around you all, there was still so much joy happening. Right, exactly. And I think that that comes just from being you know, being a part of this community, when you live at this intersection, you have to be able to find joy in the most hideous of circumstances. Uh, so to, to be met by riot police and, and um, 
and to still be able to push forward and, and, and let people hear that message is, is powerful. Right. Right. And let me ask you if we defund police, we refund fill in the blank. Education, healthcare, mental health, infrastructure, uh, and, 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 and the business community and small businesses. I think that's, you know, that's an area that could seriously be um, where funds could be directed because we, we know for a fact that funds were redirected out of black business districts, right? We know that funds have been redirected out of the LGBTQ community. So let's put those funds back in and start to promote uh, economic wealth, right, within these communities that you've divested from already intentionally and it was intentionally the municipal government the state government that divested from black communities and we shouldn't be telling the people that we have to rely on privatization and corporate interest to invest back in those communities that's actually exactly what we have the government to do and that's that's why you're exactly right. Our, our businesses, our small businesses, not our corporate chains, not franchises, but all of our businesses could be supported if our general fund, if our local administration was able to refund some of the money that we have in public safety back into these community settings that you're speaking of. Yes, absolutely. So when, when we say defund the police, we want those funds to be redirected into the community through healthcare, through education, uh, through small business, mental health. Those are, those are where those dollars are actually needed, not with folks who just want to terrorize a community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and like you said at the very beginning, continuing to put money into an institution where the majority of your non-white constituents do not believe in the institution as well as fear the institution and actually lose their lives to this institution. It's like, how much longer are we not going to hear that there's no equity unless we are reallocating funds away from harmful institutions and into these institutions of care. And just like you said at the beginning as well, there's not gonna be perfect, just like in Camden, it wasn't perfect, but what a radical move to just fire all of the cops. And I'm not saying that's what we have to do, but a radical move like that is how we're gonna gain the trust of some real imagination without police. Exactly, exactly. Even if we take a look at Henrico, uh, Shannon Taylor just came out last night. They're, they're opening up a whole new position to be, as my understanding now, to be like a, uh, an overseer of the police and a liaison uh, for the uh, community review board. Now, there's definitely a lot of you know, details that need to be ironed out and understood and things like that. But at the very least, She's, she's charging the KKK leader who ran into those um, protesters, right? And she's, and she's bringing forth uh, a new position to try to address the problem. Right. I, and, I do. And, 
I do appreciate that she is, is charging hate crimes um, on that particular terrorist. It took long enough, but we are, we are doing that. And number two, I appreciate the idea of an oversight of someone, but I do have serious questions about that person being in the CA's office. Many people, we haven't gotten there in this movement, but many people also understand the prosecutors to be cops and why- Absolutely. So why so many people right now are calling out Colette McEachin, um, because that it is a institution of policing from police, from the Commonwealth attorney to the sheriff. Um, and that is our pipeline of our incarceration, right? But of our, incar our, of our incarceration, but it is important to see that at least Henrico is making moves. I'm not sure how she came up with that answer. I'm not sure if she had public input, like you said in the very beginning, whatever we do, we need to ensure that it's input from the community that that's what we wanted and, and not hiring a police chief that has a past shooting, hiring a police chief that has a past shooting or hiring another police chief that's being sued in another area and running from their ACLU, right? Um, exactly. How ridiculous is that? It's ridiculous. How ridiculous is that? It's like you're literally... Your people have elected you to protect them, to serve them. And what you are doing day in and day out is saying, F you. I don't serve you. I serve the people that we use your money to, to pretend as if they protect and serve you. I serve those people. But all they do is serve themselves. So I'm on their side. People haven't been violent during protests in weeks, right? That was the initial bang of, of what was happening, where we saw the police precincts being burned down. Shout out to those folks in Minnesota. You know, where we saw, you know, DTLR uh, take one for the team. You know, shout out to DTLR. You know, but that's been, it's been weeks since that happened. And these protests are peaceful. And even if they're, and, and they don't have to be, right? They don't even have to be peaceful for the police officer's job to be to protect and serve them and uphold their First Amendment right to assembly. But that's not what they want to do. They want to come out with the riot gear and, and show everyone that we have the power and you're going to do what we say. So, I mean, when it comes down to it, who do they protect and serve? Is it the community? Is it the taxpayers? Is it the citizens? Uh, that they ask their money of, or are they protecting and serving themselves? And what we've seen day in and day out, week in and week out, is that these police officers, empowered by our elected officials, are only here to serve themselves. They want to show that they have the power, that they have the brute, and that we must submit to them immediately, when asked every single time, or else they're just going to flashbang us, rubber bullet us, you know, pepper spray us, these weapons of mass destruction, right? These, these tools that can't even be used overseas. They have no problem using on citizens day in and day out. This is atrocious. And you, you're making this, the decision not to stand with the people. And you will, and I, I feel you will regret that come November. Go vote. Mm, mm, mm. Um, what is your privilege and how are you using it in this moment? Which is like, my black queer and existing but how are you using it in this moment to to resist the myth of white supremacy 
I guess I would say my privilege is that I was raised in a household that that uh, vehemently believed that white supremacy was a hoax, right? It wasn't real. There was no, uh, there's no supremacy to anything whiteness. That whiteness is a lie. It is a made up construct, made up out of thin air to divide and conquer. And we are still seeing the iterations of that today. So my privilege is being able to identify the nonsense and the, the lip service and say, hey, if we really drill it back down, you're not doing what I pay you to do, and I'm going to hold you accountable for that. So I guess knowledge, uh, credence, you know? So yes. that's my privilege. And we thank you for using that and everything that you and Black Pride RVA are doing. Um, really quickly, what do you all have coming up for the listeners to stay in touch with you? Uh, well, uh, we are super excited to be able to bring our virtual uh, Black Pride RVA weekend, uh, the weekend of July 17th, July 17th and 18th, Black Pride RVA. We will, we will be virtual this year, uh, but we have a lot of content and a lot of great uh, uh, people collaborating with us. So we are excited to offer that to you guys, the 17th and the 18th Black Pride RVA. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Natasha Crosby. And how can people follow you? Uh, you can follow me at Natasha D. Crosby on IG, uh, at Natasha Crosby sells RVA. What you out there selling, Natasha? Oh, I'm a realtor. I help uh, people buy and sell homes. Look at you. So. Thank you. Look at this greatness. <laughs> Black excellence. Thank you so much, Natasha, for being here on Race Capital. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me, Chelsea. And up next, I had to invite the Seattle organizer that um, included myself and Jasmine Leeward and their just phenomenal event that happened on June 25th. Welcome to the show, Jake Peck. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Jake is a Black LGBTQ plus activist out in Seattle and uh, organized the All Black Lives Matter March last Thursday. And this is something that Jasmine and I really looked forward to. It was a point of so much joy, as well as just having our stories heard, as well as talking about demands. And Richmond folks, we love being by the water, but let me tell you, the last ending spot of this march was a beautiful sight to see. So Jake, I had to have your voice on here so that our Richmond listeners could hear a little bit more about you, um, about y'all's work, and really just the parallels that we're seeing from the South to the Northwest. Yeah, so um, I, uh, I'm native to Seattle, and which is um, kind of rare these days. Obviously, there's been such a tech boom here. And, um, you know, that brings the opportunity that there's people from all over the world that have come to Seattle and are visible here. So um, myself being a native, I'm seen as almost this, uh, this weird anomaly now where people are like, whoa, like, you know, you actually know what the roots of Seattle look like and you know what the city has transformed into. So what I tried to bring together was the fact that there being somebody from here that I do understand the neighborhood differences and I do understand how the area where particularly we all held the march at on Thursday on the 25th, it, it's an area that traditionally was never even to be touched. It, before it was a tech boom area, it was an area that was actually 
extremely poor in warehouses and was heavily congested with homelessness. And so when the tech companies started to come in, myself growing up, coming into the city, I just lived south of the city. Coming in as like a young child, I saw that area as uh, you didn't touch it. You didn't go over there. It was dangerous. And then to where now, um, it's an area where people thrive and they want to move here and they want to live in this area. And so I, uh, I, live, in, I live in an area that I would say is very heavily predominantly white. Um, we also have a huge Asian influence because of the tech business bringing people from overseas in Asia. And, um, and then we also have a huge presence of um, people here for work from India. So I've tried to find my place in, in what seems like a pretty diverse, but still predominantly white driven neighborhood due to corporate business. So what that has caused is, I think for a lot of the people that are in this area that would probably like to protest and speak out, have felt that they don't have a space to do that properly here mm. um, because they know that their corporate business and their job relies on it and it will be looked down upon. And so what I wanted to do was bring an opportunity for people to safely do that and to show that they can still, you know, join in on this movement and still be respectful of, you know, their positions, their jobs. Yeah, it is. It's a fine intersection of still having to be respectful and be to make a living sometimes <laughs> and work the schedule as well as just feel safe out there doing that at this point. Yeah. And by safe, I mean, with our people, with the, with our message, and not necessarily law enforcement. You mentioned tech companies. Is there any company, one or two by name, that you can say? Yeah, so um, Amazon, this is their headquarters based right here in South Lake Union. Um, We also just recently had the expansion of Google, which has a really big presence here. Amazon, um, right next door to my building, is having a huge um, Northwest headquarter being built. Facebook is only right diagonal from where I live. So it's really, truly all the biggest players in the world have come to this one particular area and really have, have taken over um, a neighborhood that traditionally nobody nobody would have wanted to take over. Right. Um, it's really interesting in Richmond, Virginia, our corporate uh, name is Dominion Energy. and mm-hmm. But hearing... Amazon in Seattle, we could have replaced, Jasmine and I could have replaced the word Amazon for Dominion, and it would have been the same story in Richmond. Tell us really quickly, describe for us a little bit of the march. I was really excited to get some great audio from the speakers and the chants. Just saying their names, Jake. The next name that we need to start chanting in these streets is Raya Milton. This woman, this black trans woman, member of Cincinnati, Ohio, killed in June last this month, June 2020, misgendered by the media. Walk down the street so and say these women's names, and that was so powerful. But what inspired mm-hmm. you to curate the march the way that you did? Absolutely. So um, it really came from, it really, I'll, I'll say, you know, it really came from a dream, right? So I, I was waiting for somebody to do an event like this that I had built in my mind. And I kind of, I've, I've been at protests over the weeks um, and have really seen that there hasn't been a strong focus in um, the black LGBTQ plus community. And there also has been a lack of presence by these people, which um, we have this beautiful community um, of people, but yet because of the, um, the current fears and the current um, threat to people like Black trans women, um, they haven't felt like they have a comfortable space to come out and actually 
protests as others are. And so um, as much as you are seeing, you know, plenty of people from just the Black community in general come out, I've been seeing the lack of Black trans um, women especially and Black queer and everybody has really been lacking because they don't feel like their particular self is being uh, protected in these areas and it's you know it's safe it's not safe for them to walk home and, and so what I wanted to do was I really wanted to create a space that was designated for them and I wanted it to be the safest spot as possible um, I wanted them to feel comfortable and come out and be able to finally march and protest like the rest of us have and the, a lot of them that I talked to they said I want to be out there so bad but like I literally feel like my life is at risk if I go and show my face and if I go out there and be 100% who I need to be in order to be present in the march. And so I took that energy and I've always really been a supporter of Black trans women because I see them as some of the strongest of really of Black voices. You know, I always kind of describe the oppression level that comes with um, being Black and, and, and also being gay. And it's, you know, I always say there's the struggle of being gay there's the struggle of being Black, and then there's struggle to be gay and Black. And with extending from that, there's a further struggle of being trans on top of that. And so really what I wanted to do was create a march that allowed people to be able to see the strength that these people have. And when they speak, they speak. And it is loud and clear. And you know that if anybody has ever been oppressed in this world the hardest, it's honestly these women and it's also trans men as well too. And so um, creating a space that was safe for them to be able to march was really the goal. So the opening was really, um, I, I decided to structure it in a way that was, I, I needed it to be a balance between messages and speeches and performances because I think one of the biggest things that um, this community has to offer from the Black LGBTQA um, IA plus is really that there's so much talent that is undiscovered and we have a ballroom scene here that has not even fully grown to its potential yet and so um, what I wanted to incorporate was reminding people that we have these local black talents that we need to appreciate and that we need to uplift and use our platforms to show how much these people have to offer in the arts. The first hour of the of the march was really designated towards hearing people's messages, hearing people, you know, speak about personal experiences. And then also we had to talk about current topics that I think need to be, you know, highlighted a little bit more like Elijah McClain. And we also really needed to talk about further issues of we need to face talking about the issues first so that we know what to actually address mm -hmm. and we need that to not be distracted by violence and aggression for at least a second we need to be able to get to people's hearts so that they can then have that resonate and um and learn what they need to do better in their day-to-day -day life mm -hmm. to be able to fight this um beyond just the protests so the first hour was centered around that um the next hour was um really made for the march and um, I tell you, the performance at the first intersection on that march was, it, it was a vision that I had that I, I didn't know if I was going to see it come true. Um, I knew what I had to have was a Black trans woman body and own that moment and just have that platform to shine. And um, having Tina Shea Monet 
do that performance of Lift Every Voice and Sing by Beyonce was one of the most powerful moments of that entire day Mm -hmm. um, because it's something that I know she needed that Mm -hmm. and she had not been out to protest yet and she really needed to she hadn't been able to also perform much lately because of the issues with COVID right so that really brought her I know back to a root of what she is so talented to do mm-hmm. and bring her back to somewhat of like a normalcy for her because this is yeah. about it was it was really great that you were able to tie it back to culture as well Absolutely. as the culture that we use to survive as artists in many places and how our double pandemic of uh, COVID and racism Mm -hmm. are really impacting Black trans women as well that keep us joyous in spaces for brunch, but don't forget now in this moment, right? I know we don't have as much time as we would like, but I would love to hear, you know, really quickly, what are you all asking for and demanding for in Seattle, as well as what is your privilege and how are you really using that right now to disrupt the narrative? Yeah, so um, right now what we're really wanting to focus on is the defunding of the SPD still. Um, We know that a lot of our areas lack funding in order to be able to fully enhance Black culture, the arts. We also are in a lack of resources. I would have the opportunity to speak on my issues with mental health and finding a Black counselor. And I think a lot of that stems from not having resources to uplift Black people within the community in the earlier education stages. So we really are trying to still fight hard for um, the defunding and reinvesting in areas of the community to help Black people to have necessary resources for being able to better their education and have a better path. And then my privilege is uh, right now that I've grown a base on Instagram, honestly, with a so many followers and supporters. And um, there's been so many people with amazing messages, but not have not gained the proper following that I feel like they deserve. And so what I want to do is I want to take my platform and um, give that as a space for people to be able to, you know, promote their events that they're also trying to lead within the community, similar to how I did without the support of larger organizations. Um, I want to be able to share more facts and be able to get people the exposure to petitions that they need to sign. Um, and really, you know, it's right now I clocked out at 10.6 thousand followers on, on Instagram. And I feel that that's a privilege to have essentially a platform on social media where I feel like there's a lot of people that I'm trying to get to that level because I feel like they deserve it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jake, for your work. Thank you for your presence. And I'm so glad to call you a new friend. I know I'm so happy and I'm so (laughs) thankful that you were able to be a part of this and the feedback and response from your Uh, message that you gave was absolutely phenomenal and people heard you and they really did stand for Richmond in that time and it was it was absolutely
up and, and get all these messages in Richmond about where is all this Seattle support coming from? Yeah. It's really beautiful from the East Coast. So thank you for that. Um, solidarity, defund SPD, defund RPD. Um, thank you so much, Jake. And how can people follow you and keep up with what's going on? Yeah, my primary resource right now is via Instagram. So at it's Jake Pack is a good uh, resource. This is where I'm sharing um, you know, messages from people in the community. This is where I'm sharing events. And this is also where I hope to really hope um, promote further events that I'm looking to host. So, yeah. Well, we will definitely share your information uh, here at Race Capital and just appreciate you again for welcoming myself and Jasmine. Absolutely. You're always welcome. Thanks, Jake. Yeah, thank you. Hey Chelsea, thanks for having me on. So I'm Rebecca Keel. My pronouns are they, them, and theirs. And today I am wearing the hat of um, Virginia statewide organizer and campaign lead for Southerners on New Ground, or SONG for short. Um, thanks again for having me on, Chelsea. Especially in this capacity as a community organizer with SONG, especially in this time of uprisings in defense of black life. I am reminded of 2013, 14, 15, when there was the first round of uprisings in defense of black lives, when Trayvon Martin was killed by the police, when Mike Brown was killed by the police, among many others. And people took the streets, people were doing direct action organizing. And at the time I was um, an undergrad in college um, or maybe grad school, I don't remember anymore. <laughs> but um, I'm remembering at the time the type of mentorship that really, really made a, a big difference in the way we were conducting direct actions and the type of mentorship that really taught me strategy. And that came from song, it came from um, also community strategist, Lily A. Estes, may she rest in peace. <laughs> she was also a song member. <laughs> um, so, What's really important that was instilled in me from Southerners on New Ground was understanding power dynamics. Um, and especially understanding how that looks with elected appointed officials. So um, Song will often take uh, folks through this exercise called a power map. And it's pretty simple, but it's really profound at the same time because it takes your, your locality, where you are, whether that's a neighborhood, a county, a city, uh, a whole state, the country, what have you, wherever you are, wherever you're trying to organize for power to win something and explaining, okay, what are this, who are the people who can give you what you want, aka your target? This word may be a little scary to people, who's a target, but your target is simply someone that wields the power who can uh, comply to your demand. Um, I'll talk uh, more in depth about this in a moment, but one of our 
our targets right now is uh, Colette McEachin. She is a target because she holds a specific power in the role of Commonwealth attorney. I think Colette's probably a lovely person, yada, yada, all the things about individuals. However, in this role of Commonwealth attorney, she holds a great deal of power for two of the demands um, specifically put out by the family of Marcus David Peters, uh, the organization Justice and Reformation, aka United Front. So one of those demands is to reopen the case of Marcus David Peters. Um, Last or two years ago in 2018, the then Commonwealth attorney Michael Herring deemed it a justifiable homicide when we just know there absolutely must be a more in-depth investigation than there was at the time. And so we've asked nicely, we've demanded that the Commonwealth attorney reopen the case. A second um, uh, piece of power that the Commonwealth attorney um, holds is to drop charges of anyone who's convicted. Um, and then also, this is like a side note, but we are still living in a pandemic. Uh, the Commonwealth attorney has the power uh, to help people get released out of Richmond City Jail. And so, unfortunately, Colette McEachin has not been exercising her power in a way that is in line with with the movement, uh, in line with Movement for Black Lives, in line with these uprisings, defense of black lives, whatever you want to call it. Um, it without complying, uh, we can call it complying, we can call it... Um, delivering we can call it listening we can call it acting whatever it is but without the commonwealth attorney doing what we're asking them to do um they're going to find themselves on the wrong side of history and that's the unfortunate truth and so learning that there there are targets there are people who can give you what you want in combination with learning um about strategy and tactics within a strategy so i think about strategy as like the roadmap that you have um that shows you where your destination is. And every stop on that roadmap is a tactic. A tactic is simply an action that you take, whether that is taking the streets, doing a phone bank, um, showing at someone's house, doing a big banner drop, um, doing memes about someone. There's so many tactics in the revolution and we gotta deploy them all. And I've been seeing that in Richmond, I'm really proud. But I think that's th that simple power map to understand the lay of the land, the social, political, historical landscape that you're in, in combination with who can give you what you want, in combination with the strategy for getting what you want, in combination with what are the steps you're going to take to get there. That is a skill that was imparted in me, literally tattooed in my mind by Southerners on New Ground, um, by the good folks at Song. And so several weeks ago now we employed a squad up skill up slay as one of our um cornerstones of organizing in the sense of you squad up you get with an organization you get with your people um individuals are so mighty but organizations are much more effective so squad up skill up actually learn the things the pieces of movement that um both are like new and exciting pieces of movement but also things that have just worked for a long time no need to reinvent the wheel completely so squad up skill up slay street fighter series 
we don't have a next date set for that but we'll be putting it out some more if you want to watch the videos though go to song's facebook page um that's southerners on new ground on facebook to find uh the video recordings of those they resume meetings and each time they're over like 500 people watching so a lot more folks are trained up on the fundamentals of both community organizing and direct action campaign campaigning um and also understanding again and i'm going to say it again because it's really important who's your target What's the overall strategy and what are the tactics that you're going to employ to give you what you want? And so that was really imparted in me as a young activist um, and budding organizer. And I'm really glad it was. And I find myself now in a role that my mentors were in back in the first round of Uprisings in Defense of Black Life, which is in reflection a real honor to be in this role now. Okay. So let's talk about hashtag call out Colette. <laughs> um, being that I had stated earlier that the Commonwealth attorney has a great deal of power with two of the particular demands. Um, one is to reopen the case of Marcus David Peters. The other one is to drop the charges. Let's start with the first one about reopening the case of Marcus David Peters. In an interview on June 22nd with myself and three members of the ACLU, we asked this direct question, Colette McEachin, because you have stated that Princess Blanding is one of your contemporary political heroes, uh, would you consider reopening the case of Marcus David Peters? Now, for context, uh, in... August of 2019, myself and you, Chelsea, interviewed Colette McEachin here on Rachel's Capital and asked her who contemporary political heroes are, to which she stated, It would be, and I, I am not going to get all these women's names right, uh, Trayvon Martin's mom, mm. Eric Garner's mom, um, any mother whose child was taken from her and who is still fighting, who is not willing to you know, just have the funeral and a few words from people and then sink back into an anonymous state. These women are still out there fighting, whether through Black Lives Matter or through their own foundations, and they are not letting America forget what America did to their children. To which then you, Chelsea, said, what about Princess Blanding, Marcus David Peters' sister, who's out there fighting? Mm -hmm. Justice and Reformation. Is she one of your contemporary heroes? And then Colette McEachin responded. Yes, she would be. She would be. Because she's, she's, she is fighting. And I understand. I have never met her. Um, I, I, and I don't know that she would ever want to meet me or anyone from the Commonwealth's Attorney's Office. Pander, pander, pander after that. Um, so we brought this back up with the, with the direct ask of, would you consider reopening the case? Colette McEachin answered this question, Yes. Now, that was a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, and now the case is still not reopened. So, you know, we have her on audio saying that she'll do it, but will she actually do it is another question. So when we think about, again, like the lessons of tactics and escalation and all the things, like we got a commitment, is the commitment being yet met yet? Since it's not, let's keep applying pressure. So demand number two with um, dropping the charges of the 233 protesters whose First and Fourth Amendment rights were violated by the police and National Guard as these um, within the uprisings. Um, we sat down, again, the ACLU and Song on um, June 22nd to discuss. In that conversation, we learned that McEachin uh, can do something called a null pros, which is uh, where it basically makes it that the charges 
never appear in the first place, you know? So I'm not a lawyer, but folks at the ACLU are, so please direct your questions to them. But again, there is, the Commonwealth Attorney does have the power to do a null process um, for each individual case, allowing that um, the charges appear that they were never even brought up in the first place. Colette McKeachin has the power to do this, has not done this yet. And we really want her to do the right thing and be on the right side of history. As um, Lily Estes would say, I don't want you to be under the bus, but you find yourself up under the bus. What are you going to We'll help you get out, but you know, it really takes you to get from under the bus. And, and so Colette McKeachin, if you're listening, we don't want you under the bus, but you are under it. And let's let's get you up out of there. So do the null pros for the charges um, for the uh, every single protester. Um and then reopen the case. It's simple as that. Exercise your power. Be on the right side of history. Um, because the demands have not been met yet, we are um, having a campaign. We being the community, it's not coming from one exact source, one exact person, but the hashtag call out Colette. Um, because she has stated publicly um, and in recording that she's willing to comply to at least the first demand of reopening the case with dropping the charges. We'll have to see. We'll have to see where that goes. But we're not just going to wait and see idly. We are going to keep escalating actions um, because we know that the folks out on the streets protesting in defense of Black lives um, are the ones that are really, really helping to advance this movement to end police brutality, defund the police, eventually abolish the police, and create systems that actually, actually work for us, systems based on care and compassion. Um, That's also something that I've just really taken to heart here is like, we are really building something, something new. And so as we talk about defund the police, I want every thought that you have after you hear that to be, okay, well, we're going to defund the police and we're going to fund X, Y, and Z. So um, Chelsea, I know that you're wanting to ask me what my privilege is. And I thought hard about it this week. Um, and this might be an unpopular answer, especially coming from a black person right now in the United States. But my privilege is being an American. It's living under the U.S. Constitution. Um, but there are other countries in uprisings right now in defense of black life, for education, for basic health care, for women's liberation, what have you. But free speech isn't protected. The right to assemble is not protected. The fascist rule there is even more brutal, brutal than it is here. And even though our national government, with the complete incompetence of 45, did mess up badly with how uh, nationally responded to COVID-19, we're still better off than a myriad of other countries. And so I'm just going to name that being an American is a privilege um, in a national scope and scale. Um, it might be an unpopular opinion, but it's mine. And look... <laughs> this American constitution, this American life is unraveling. So we really, again, have an opportunity to create something else, which excites me. So this is how you can get connected to the work of Southerners on New Ground, my political home, and the folks who have really taught me a lot about the need for multiracial organizing, power building, understanding targets, tactics, all of that. 
And so the way to get connected is just go to our website, southernersonnewground.org. You can find us on uh, Instagram or Twitter. That's at Ignite Kindred. Um, And then finally, you can follow me on Instagram. I am campaign underscore mama. And then um, for folks who want to connect even deeper, just find me on IG and more ways to connect. But um, you can also hit me on that Venmo, Rebecca-Keel-2, to donate to my livelihood as a black queer femme community organizer. So Chelsea, thank you so much for having me on. And I'm really looking forward to where the revolution takes us in Richmond, Virginia, 2020. From the South to the Northwest, we'd like to thank all of our guests today on Race Capital for their hard work to fight for the liberation and defend Black life by showing the true act of love, which is defunding the police. We'll catch you next time, right here on Race Capital. used to all be Black. And then they pushed them down that way you know, because this is real close to downtown and stuff and the white people want it. Like most of these apartments over here run for like 4,000 a month. They start at 4,000 a month. <laughs> Especially over there by the precinct. Is that like a two bedroom or what's no, that? No, 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 that's a one bedroom. One? One bedroom, they start at 4,000. Especially right over there where all the protests is. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you go over there, that's where, that's where all the, uh, you know, and when you said the protest, that like near the, the chop or like what area yeah, would you yeah, call that? Yeah, chop, yeah. chop, yeah. right over there. Uh huh. And they're yeah, mostly doctors, it. lawyers, you know, business owners, uh-huh. you know, mostly okay. gay, gay so, white people. Yeah. There's only two percent black that live over here now. Two. Two percent. All the rest is white. Gay white. And it used to be. It used to be like eighty percent. Well, sixty percent, sixty, seventy percent. From fifty to two. From what was what like. This, was, this, was like, this is like in the 70s, 60s and 70s. So right right when the Voter Voting Rights Act happened, right. they wanted to dilute black votership. Okay. Y'all in the same area, the same thing happened at Richmond. As 1970s, they really and just now, started.